Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! Welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 92, and my name is Scott Gardner. As always, I am joined by my very good friend, Michael Bailey. See, you say that, and uh, I completely agree with you. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Well, that's what the contract says, I have to say, so you know, I'm not allowed to change it up. Yeah, we don't we don't go against those DeMonzo Corps lawyers. They, uh, <laughs> they're the ones that go, Disney lawyers? Ha! <laughs> How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm going to pretend we haven't been talking for an hour. <laughs> About everything. Man, if, if people could hear the pre-show talk. Oh, man. Yeah, we get all the expletives out of the way and all the bashing and just all that stuff that just just can't, can't make it into a recording. All it's the good like, stuff, essentially. It's like an hour to an hour and a half of that audio that got released from Christian Bale when he went off on that dude <laughs> during the filming of uh, uh, Terminator Salvation. <laughs> it, it's like the podcast equivalent of the Nixon tapes, essentially, is what it comes down to, yeah. <laughs> Except we're not going to bring down a president. So, <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't be if, opposed to it if we ever, through the course of the show, and I'm not, I'm not just talking Obama either. I'm talking like any president that that because God knows how long we're going to be doing this. But if we ever somehow manage to bring down a presidency, I think we will be remembered forever in history because if a podcast about the Justice Society of America somehow brings down the most power- one of the most powerful figures on the planet, it will be dumb luck, but it would be one of the most awesome things that ever happened. Oh, that's definitely going on the DVD cover, yes. <laughs> yes yeah, that's going to get a mention. <laughs> well, Scott, I am here to kick ass and read emails, and we've got a crap load of emails. So Yes, we do. <laughs> you, uh, I guess I'll kick us off with Russell Bragg. All right. Uh, it says, Tales of the Justice Society of America, number 85, January 1985. Thank you for mentioning the episode title right off so that I can still not remember anything I said during the course <laughs> of it. So, <laughs> Hey guys, Russell writes, great show as always. Michael, you blew my mind. You never put Ted Knight the actor with Starman? Wow. Whenever I think about Starman, I automatically see Ted Baxter from the Mary Tyler Moore show. 
Not that I see him as playing Starman or as anything. It's just because the Ted Knight name. And yes, Ted Knight was on Too Close for Comfort and Caddyshack and was the voiceover for the Super Friends and Aquaman. Uh, he did a lot of the he did some of the filmation stuff too. Hmm. Back in the late sixties. I knew he was the voiceover on Super Friends. I did not know he did Aquaman's voice, though. Yeah, if you uh, if you listen to the opening thing to Aqua Aquaman, King of the Sa- I think that's Ted Knight. So, hmm. for some reason, when you guys were talking about Starman hoping not to lose his grip on the power rod, I thought of an issue of What If Volume One, Issue Seven. It's about Spider Man, and what if others had been bitten by the spider? One story was Flash Thompson bitten, and he goes up against the Vulture without looking at the issue. I believe Flash holds onto the vulture while he flies away and loses his grip. Not being a scientist, Flash didn't make web shooters, so he falls to his death. (laughs) (laughs) I have always liked the Starman character, even though I don't have a vast knowledge about him. Uh, I liked his look. I really got into the character with the Starman Observatory podcast, uh, which sadly only lasted three episodes. uh, That's me, not... uh, not Russell. I was I was kind of I was enjoying that show because it was an interesting mix of people. I even bought the two archive volumes of Starman just so I could follow along. Little did I know that they would double cross me and stop the show after three episodes. <laughs> just kidding. No, uh, I I know Charlie and uh, and Dave and John, and they told me that it was because they heard that you bought the. No, I'm just kidding, Russell. <laughs> Um, I really like the show and know if they could have continued, they would have. I know they have one final episode in the can, but only they know when it will come out. Really enjoyed both issues discussed. Was this the final appearance of the Ultra Humanite? Uh, I'm also... Oh. Is he... No. Ultra Humanite's popped up a bunch of times. I wonder if it's in the course of the series it might be the last time we see the Ultra Humanite, but I know he's returned. Um... He was, especially post-Infinite Crisis as well, he's been, he popped up a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't answer this one, that's okay, but will your coverage of Crisis on Infinite Earths be extensive or just one episode? <laughs> I think we've proven that it's going to be more than one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you you stumped us there, Russell, because it's just like, we, we, we got a whole year of this stuff planned. <laughs> I can't wait. I also can't wait to hear America versus the JSA. I still remember seeing that cover of issue number one in Comics Ad and wishing I had. It was many, many years before I knew how the story went, but it was worth the wait when I could finally read it. I don't remember how I got it uh, or for how much, but I believe they came from Mile High Comics. And I got all four issues at once. Hope I haven't rambled too much. Before closing, I completed another series recently, the first volume of Supergirl from 1972 hoping to complete Super Team Family in the 1973 Secret Origin series soon. So many comics I want, so little money. Oh well, that's a hobby for you. Continued success. Russell Bragg from Clarksburg, West Virginia. And Russell is the host of the DC Comics Present show. Mm-hmm. I've liked the first five issues of that Supergirl series. Uh, I still need to pick up the la- the back half of that that uh, that one. At some I've point. only got just just a couple issues of that very scattered issues. I know I have one. I think it's issue two, the one where she's saving Prez. She's either saving Prez or she's going to drop Prez from like high up in the air, something <laughs> like that. But I, I, I remember that. I think that was the first issue of that I ever got. But I've only got a couple. But uh, Super Team Family, I have a, a real affinity for. I've got a, a pretty good run of that as well. And uh, the Secret uh, Origins ones are good if you can find them. They're kind of hard to, to get at this point. You know what? I don't I'd... think they're 
Uh, I'm sorry? Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't think they're particularly valuable. They're just kind of hard to find. I I lucked into uh, the villain version of that a couple years ago. I got, like, the first... I don't know if it's all of it, but I got the first nine issues of Wanted. Oh, yeah. Which was Mm -hmm. a 70 series that had the origins for villains. Mm -hmm. And it was just at my shop, and they were, like, two bucks a piece. And I had never really seen them before, but I had this... I have this strange attraction to 70, 70s reprint titles. I have mm-hmm. no idea why. Uh, it's not like I grew up during that era, so I'm trying to recapture my youth or anything. It's just there's something... I think it's mostly the covers make everything look kind of cool. Yeah. When sometimes that's probably not the case. No, it's very true, because that, you know, that's the whole reason I bought those... Uh... Oh god, I can't even think of what they were called now. From Beyond or whatever the hell they were called recently at my at my comic shop. I bought a bunch of them for a buck a piece and it turned out that they were all reprints of like old like mystery and space Ooh. stories and stuff like, you know, strange adventures and stuff like that. But I just I love the covers on them and they just looked really cool because it was again, it was that 70s, you know, style. But I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I love stuff like that. I, I think part of it too is that it comes down to I I and this is just a guess, but I don't think the print runs were particularly high on those because they seem to be kind of rare. And it's funny because when you find them, they're not usually terribly expensive because, you know, they're reprint books or what, but you just don't see them all that often. Yeah. So when I see them on the cheap, I tend to scarf them up, you know, so I've got a, you know, a very loose collection of them, you know, and I don't think I have a complete collection of any of those titles, but I, they're just fun, you know, when you stumble across them like that. No, I'll, I'll agree with that. And I'm just in kind of a DC mood this year uh, because it's, it's you know, it's the 75th anniversary of the JSA, so we uh, we will have to do something at this year for that, mm-hmm. uh, obviously. But it's also the 80th anniversary of DC Comics. Oh, that's true. Because wow. uh, 30 years ago, it was the 50th. So. Yeah. Hey, you're right. Wow. Yeah, I know. We're old. <laughs> Well, the next one we've got here is a very brief one. This one is from Dale Russell, and Dale writes, he says, On my way to Disney. This is sort of a, a, of a almost like a personal note to me. It just says, uh, I'm going to be spending so, uh, some quality time at Disney uh, from January 1st to the 5th. He says, If I find the time and the stars align, where and when will you be so I can come by and shake your hand? He says, uh, We can talk a little John Byrne love. Dale! I never heard from you, buddy. What happened? Now, here's the thing. What I'm thinking, like I say, you know, this was uh, addressed to the Tales inbox, um, and it was kind of addressed to me. So I'm thinking that because you didn't hear from me, maybe that you're thinking that I wasn't interested or what. And I really hope that's not the case, because um, that that that's sad. If that's the case, I feel badly. It's just, you know, when we get to these emails, is often the first time we're actually reading them. Or at least for me, anyway. So, uh, you know, when I, we got to this recently, you know, January first uh, through the fifth had come and gone. Uh, so, I'm sorry if uh, if it's because you didn't hear back from me on this email. But I hope you enjoyed your trip. I hope you did get to come on your trip. Give us some feedback. Write back in. Let us know, uh, you know, that you did make the trip and how it went and everything. And uh, and I apologize. In future, uh, I'll try to get on this sort of thing a little bit better. And. <clears throat> be able to actually get together with you because uh, I enjoy that sort of thing. Um, I actually had a listener that uh, stopped by um, where I work recently, and uh, you know, just you know, for this express purpose, just to come by and introduce himself and shake my hand, and that was pretty cool. 
So, uh, yeah, I encourage that sort of thing. So, again, I'm sorry, Dale, that, uh, that I missed the time that you were here uh, if you did make the trip. So write back in and just, you know, give us an update. Let us know what, uh, how it went. Do you want me to do the next one since that one was so short, Mike? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So the next one here. Ah, here we go. I am very curious on the feedback because I think we've got a couple of them that touch on this next subject. This one is America versus the JSA. This one is from Harlan Freilicker. And he writes in, he says, Hi, guys. Enjoying the show as always and really looking forward to your crisis coverage. In listening to your coverage of America versus the JSA's recap of the Ian Carkle story, you both seem troubled that the JSA now knew uh, that they'd been saving future presidents in that story. There wasn't anything mysterious about it. The JSA always knew who they were saving, but at the time it seemed like a random collection of people. Neither they nor Tarantula put it together because the story was told in a flashback from World War II uh, to earlier in World War II. America vs. the JSA, on the other hand, took place in the 1980s. By then, the JSA had had ample opportunity to notice that every single guy elected to the high office of the land over the next four decades had been somebody that they had saved on that fateful day uh, that they'd been infused with the weird coronal energy which had slowed their aging and ensured that their who's who entries would annoy Shag. Huh. You know... That's supposing, though, that they actually followed the lives of these people. And I don't know, Mike, what, what do you think? I, I tend to think that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, I think he's got a point. On the other hand, uh, and you're going to enjoy this, if that is the case, then Reagan should have stepped up and said, you guys need to knock this off because they saved my life back in the 40s. And uh, mm. I stand with the JSA. When you really think about it, well, yeah, him and him and whatever former presidents would still be alive yeah. at that time. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah know, that's Carter true. and Ford and Nixon and uh, yeah, that, I think that was it. Johnson died in the seventies, didn't he? Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm Lyndon Johnson sure. died in like nineteen seventy four or something like that, uh, because he actually found this out. I watched a special on Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and apparently he had a study done. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but the History Channel passed it off as fact. And as we know from Ancient Aliens, everything the History Channel says is factual. Uh, it's kind of like the internet. And he apparently had a study done about how long he would live after the presidency. You know, based on past presidents and stuff. And apparently it was within a couple months of what, what that study said. So... Hmm. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, you would think that they would be like, now maybe, I don't know if Watergate happened quite the same way it happened on Earth 2 as it happened in real life, but you would think, you know, now, again, uh, playing devil's advocate to myself, the legislative branch and the executive branch, you know, the executive branch shouldn't, should not be able to tell the legislative branch what to do, you know, because of checks and balances and such. So... They couldn't have put a stop to the hearings, but it would have been interesting to hear that, you know, like a newscaster saying, you know, the, these senators and congresspeople are doing this, but the president of the United States stands with the JSA. So, but maybe Thomas wasn't thinking about that. And it was like, you know, 30 years ago. So, 
But I'm trying to remember now, did they realize at the time that the people that they were saving were future relevant? No, they didn't realize it at the time. But by the 1980s, they should have been able to put it together. Hmm. Is, I think, Harlan's point. Yeah, that, that's how I took it. So that presupposes, as I said, that they kept up with these people. And I don't know if I think that's well, kind of a stretch or not. You know I, what I, mean? I don't think it is, because it's not like they were following their lives. But if you're Alan Scott, and it's election night... 1964 and Lyndon Johnson's elected it's like dude he saved his life well Green Lantern he didn't yeah I was just gonna say he's the one that failed though his his person died yeah (laughs) you have chosen poorly (laughs) you have chosen poorly but uh but no but you would think that they would be like that was part of that case so eventually unless you know (laughs) now I know Starman was busy having an affair with Black Canary and, you know, all that other stuff. And Dr. Fate was off doing whatever the hell Dr. Fate does on a regular <laughs> basis. But you would have thought, like, Jay Garrick, of all people, would have been, like, putting it all together. So, I don't know. It's possible. It, it's possible. It's, I don't know. I, I, I Maybe I'm... I don't know. The, the analogy I was going to use is that I don't think Superman keeps up with everybody that he saves from falling out of a, off a bridge or out of a window or something, but at the same rate, that's Superman. He's kind of busy. These guys, eh, maybe not so much. So, But at the know. same time, he probably doesn't remember the name of everybody that he saved falling off a bridge, but if he, he did a story in 1939 on somebody and Superman got involved in the case and that person went on to do something famous he'd probably be more likely to remember that name. But right. but the way it was played off in the actual, the, the annual was, you know, Tarantula going, I don't know what the hell these guys were all about. Carcole's just, uh, just insane. So Right. Of all people who would have put it together, though, it would have been John Law because he was a writer and that's what he did. You know, he, he's, he's the guy that joined the All-Star Squadron saying up front, I'm going to write a book about this all someday, and they didn't shit can his ass right then and there, so. (laughs) Well, Harlan continues here, he says, "Uh, Sure, Harry S. Truman and Dwight Eisenhower could have been a coincidence, but I'm thinking that by the time the peanut farmer was elected president, they had a pretty good idea why the B-movie actor was on the list. So, I I, I mean, I guess he's got a, a good point. It still seems like a bit of a stretch to me, but it's possible. Uh, if you ever find a single person depraved enough to defend Norda as a character, I would like to challenge that person to a debate with you guys as moderators. It would be easy. All I'd have to do is prove Northwind's worthlessness uh, is described the time he locked Hawkman in his own trophy room and then went off to make a PB&J. <laughs> or, spoiler alert, the time he tried uh, to track down a villain by asking a bunch of seagulls only to be totally ignored by the seagulls. Okay, I don't remember that, but I'm looking forward to that if, when we come across it. Or pretty much any other time the feathered failure ever said or did anything. I'm stealing that. The feathered failure. I love it. Everybody hates Norda. <laughs> Thanks again for revising some of my or revisiting rather revisiting some of my all-time favorite comics keep them coming and that's from harlan freiliker thank you harlan i got a real chuckle out of that to be fair we did have somebody on the tales facebook page defend norda 
and I'm not gonna make fun of it because it was a uh, it was you know it was legitimate like you know him standing up for the character. So no matter how much we hate the character, I'm not gonna sit there and make fun of somebody for defending the character. I'm just I just. It's the internet. You never say nobody likes this because one person's going to stand up and talk about how much they like it. So that's that's just the nature of the internet. <laughs> Alrighty, we have a, another email from New Listener, which is the subject. This is from Aaron Moss, uh, who I am familiar with from writing into the Fire and Water podcast shows. Hey, Mike and Scott. I've been hearing about Tales of the JSA. I think the guys over at From Crisis to Crisis have mentioned it. If you haven't listened, you may want to check it out. A couple of guys talking about Superman. Sounds like something up Smite's alley. (laughs) 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 That was funny. Um, But I am not a huge JSA fan. I like them, just not as much as I like Superman or Firestorm. I haven't checked it out yet. But recently I heard you guys are going to tackle Crisis. Damn it, you pulled me in. I loved Crisis on Infinite Earths. So I had to download your podcast and check it out. So I figured I'd start a couple of episodes early. I've listened to episode 85 and 86. Without having a good knowledge of these comics, I have to say that you guys are doing a good job. I'll probably keep listening after you finish Crisis on Infinite Earths just because you guys are doing such a good job. Aww. Yeah, that was... That's good to hear. Because, you know, every once in a while... Because I, I listen to shows that I don't... I've never read the comics. Uh, and usually the hosts are pretty good about you know keeping people who may not have read it up to kind of up to speed but i'm glad to hear that we're we're in that class so that that was nice to hear a couple of notes on these two episodes as i'm waiting for the episode to listen for the episode to listen to america J- the versus the jsa as i have read and enjoyed the series regarding the detroit jla i have to agree that this period isn't as bad as everyone seems to say i think it gets put down more than it deserves for two reasons one, I don't think it was as good as most of the stories that preceded it. Two, as I think Scott said, vibe, enough said. Three, plus it was mostly a new group of characters, which may have caused some to dismiss it. That's three reasons. <laughs> okay. Bonus! Also, regarding G.I. Joe, I agree with Mike that from the early 20s up into the early 100s, it was a really good read. It started to lose, I think it started to lose its way, I think, when it got up over 110 to 120, somewhere in there. But before that, it was a good read. In fact, I'm thinking of modifying my tax- Task Force X podcast, plug plug, I review Ostrander's Suicide Squad and Paul Pupperberg's uh, uh, Checkmate, to be more of a heads long box or something like that and review G.I. Joe one episode and then back to Suicide Squad and Checkmate two weeks later, but I haven't decided yet. Anyways, back hmm. to you guys. Yeah, he uh, he does a he does a Suicide Squad and Checkmate show. So cool. Uh, looking forward to your crisis coverage and beyond. Also, as a second plug, I do a podcast called Head Speaks, where I talk about comics, movies, and etc. If you guys got a spare minute, but I doubt you will, as many podcasts as you guys are doing, check it out. Aaron Head Moss. All right, so the next one we have got is entitled Tales of the JSA versus America versus the Justice Society. And this is from our buddy Luke Giaconetti. He writes, Scott and Mike, hey guys, wanted to drop you a quick line about your two-part coverage of America versus the Justice Society. After seeing the solicitation for the upcoming collected edition of this, I was intrigued by the premise of the series. So imagine my delight when the first episode dropped. Here was a perfect opportunity to see what the series was all about. 
It's just another example of the tight, finely integrated, well-oiled machine that is the Two True Freaks Network when it comes to getting this sort of timely topical material to the listeners. Yeah, right. Two True Freaks. <laughs> Dumb luck since 2008. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> While parts of this sound really dry, the third issue especially, as a history of the Justice Society of America, it sounds pretty cool. I'm alright with the Golden Age stuff, although I have to admit my reading is mostly limited to Flash and Hawkman stuff uh, from over in Flash comics. But having this sort of quote-unquote love letter to the ups and downs of the Justice Society's adventures over the years sounds pretty much like uh, what I would have expected from Thomas. Not that there is anything wrong with that, but it is not necessarily the most riveting of reads. That was kind of our issue with it. Yeah. I am tangentially reminded of the interlude in the middle of the Kree-Skrull War, where Thomas decides uh, to get us all acclimated with the timely Golden characters and why we should like them as much as he does. That's all well and good, rascally Roy, but can we get back to the Avengers now? (laughs) Yeah, you know... That's one of those things, and oh man, you know, I, I've I've taken I've taken a beating for this over the years, but I just I don't think that one is as great as everybody says it is. The, have you ever read that, the Kree Scroll War? No, but I'm chalking it up to it being like an important event from the Avengers history, like like it's an important story, but that doesn't mean necessarily that I would like it because there have been many like you know. We went through this on Comics Monthly Monday. Uh, Chris chose, or somebody chose, the last issue of the Doom Patrol's appearances in My Greatest right, Adventure. Right, right, yeah. And it's one of those things where I read for years about who's who, and then, you know, you, you, you read Marv Wolfman and, and George Perez as Teen Titans, you, you would have thought that was the Bible uh, when mm-hmm. they did that great storyline. And then I finally read it, and I'm like, I, got, I shaved my legs for this? I mean... Uh, right. So I, I'm kind of worried about reading it because I love Roy Thomas and I like the Avengers. So you would think that that would be, you know, it's like, you know, who put their chocolate in my peanut butter? But I'm also kind of worried that I might not like it as a story, you know? Like, as an event, it's fine. As a piece of history, you know, the you know the, Scree, the Kree and the Skrull fought and the Avengers got in the middle of it. That's right. all well and good. But that doesn't mean that I will like the actual story in the individual issues if that makes any sense right no i it's 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 a very you know what i was going to say is that i would love to see somebody do with that storyline what you and i are doing with crisis right now because i would love for somebody to be able to point out to me why it's so well regarded and and kind of try to change my mind or make me see the light because I, I want to love it. When I sat down to read it, I wanted to love it. And I walked away going, God, that was a slog. <laughs> and I, I, it made me feel bad that I felt that way because I know that it is a highly regarded story. But here's the thing is uh, I'm like, why, why am I just wishing for this like, you know, mystical person to, to do this when, uh, I mean, on the network we have <laughs> the Avengers spotlight. So, I might pitch that to the guys, pitch that to uh, Paul and Bill, that at some point, uh, someday, we'll have to do the uh, the Kree-Skrull War and take a real good look at it, because I could be wrong, but I, I think Paul's a fan of that particular storyline, if I'm not mistaken, so maybe he could shed a little light on uh, just what the deal is with it. I mean, I don't 
I don't hate it or anything. I just I, I read it and was kind of just unimpressed with it. I mean, other than the issues that are done by Neil Adams, so the you know you know the art's fantastic. Other than that, I just didn't see what the big deal was with it. But anyway, back to Luke's email. He writes overall though this story sounds pretty cool, and if I can get a good pre-order price on the trade, I might give it a whirl. If nothing else, it will motivate me to finally read that copy of Crisis on Multiple Earths Volume One I picked up a couple of years back. Mike, you mentioned that you were able to find a complete run of Sandman Mystery Theater out of the cheap bins. Two things. One, I hate you. <laughs> Two, you question if, a, uh, if the timeline of those stories can resolve with Starman's heart attack and retirement from crime fighting. I'm not 100% sure on when his cardiac trouble goes down, but I do know that Sandman Mystery Theater begins before the U.S. entered World War II. A running theme in the series was Wesley and Diane reading the headlines in the paper of the escalation of the war in Europe. In addition, one of the most memorable and utterly disturbing stories from the run, Phantom of the World's Fair, specifically begins on the opening day of the 1939 New York World's Fair. Time moved fairly slowly in Sandman Mystery Theater, so I am figuring that the stories there slot in before Sandman's heart attack took him, quote-unquote, off the board. Hmm. Yeah, I I had not again. I've I've only read like a couple, like one or two storylines from that, so I'd completely forgotten that most of it was like the point of the series was to to kind of tell like early stories of Sandman. So that that makes perfect sense. I will say uh, I don't if I said the cheap bins, I do apologize. Uh, I actually bought those issues uh, for fifty cents a piece off of a friend, but. Still, it was a nice. It was a nice. That's show. pretty awesome. It yeah. was. It was a nice thing to find. So, uh, how long did that run? Man, you put me on the spot. I think over forty. I mean, issues, you just ballpark it. Over yeah. forty issues. Uh, I would say. Uh, I don't know if it got to issue fifty or not, but um, I know it was over that. Uh, and uh, it's it's just one of those things where yeah, it's a Vertigo title. So I know I'm probably going to have some issues with the art every once in a while, as mm-hmm. I do with. Uh, 90% of the Vertigo books I've ever seen. You know, they, they all right. can't be Steve Dillon on Preacher, is what I'm saying. Uh, but I, I just, I like it because it's story, it's modern stories, well, modern is <laughs> 20 years ago modern, but it's uh, <laughs> then modern stories taking place, you know, like uh, then modern series taking place in a previous time period. So right. the writer has kind of the benefit of hindsight of history, and can kind of work that in. So I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I'm sorry that you hate me, Luke. <laughs> Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll find uh, I'll find a way to get over that, though. I promise. I just did a quick look up here. I knew I had one issue of that series, and I thought it was issue one. It's actually issue number two, but that's the only one I've ever uh, I've ever read. But I really enjoyed it. I wouldn't mind digging into that one of these days just to to discover the whole thing. I remember really liking the one issue I have read of it. Uh, He wraps up here by saying, in any event, I enjoyed these episodes and am also looking forward to the coverage of Crisis on Infinite Earths. I first read the series back in 2012 and I blogged about each issue as I read it. If you're interested, you can find it here and he gives us the link and I need to remember to try to throw this into the uh, the show notes. And he just wraps up by saying, thanks, Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. We do appreciate your feedback very much. All right, next up we have Bat Dickery and the JSA from <laughs> from Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast. Scott and Michael. 
Thanks for covering America versus the Justice Society. I remember seeing the ads for this comic back in 1984 and desperately wanting to buy it, but being stuck in a small town with no comic shops, I was screwed. But be- being a huge fan of both Batman and the JSA and all things Earth 2, hence my online handle of Earth 2 Chris, I felt really cheated by its absence on newsstands. I learned the hows and the whys of the series from the awesome All-Star Companion series, and some of those walkier plot elements stumped me as well. I've managed to get a copy of issue number one, but I'd still like to get the rest of uh, and read it for myself. I do have problems with Batman's noble sacrifice from the Adventures of uh, Adventure Comics run and making it suicide by villain in a way. Takes Batman's hero, Batman's heroism down several notches, as does raking his friends' names through the mud, just to give them a very convoluted heads up. <laughs> it also makes poor Dick look like, well, you know. Ultimately, from those all-star companions and your coverage here, I have to say that I think the story came second to Thomas's desire to recap the JSA's history. Plus, mm-hmm. he's, he's kind of obsessed with Per Degaton. Kinda. <laughs> I think a more straightforward history of the JSA series would be would have sufficed. Maybe it would even tie it in with the Monitor and Harbinger? Have them observe the history of Earth 2 and, the, and Zero in on the JSA? Or maybe an expanded version of those great IGC-DC indexes which started cropping up around this time. The cover to this one was a homage to Thomas's all-time favorite comic book cover, All-Star number 35, which Thomas would have recreated many, many times, including on the last, uh, on the last companion volume. Oh, and as far as uh, Degaton's death, I believe that Crisis wiped that out. Not really sure why, but I seem to recall the Who's Who updates addressing the fact that Degaton's fate had changed with the elimination of Earth 2. Well, yeah, because they would have never done. There was no Earth 2 Batman. So, unless they change it that it was another JSA member, like Mr. Terrific, (laughs) accuses them from beyond the grave. It's it's funny because we discuss so many topics when we covered that four issue series. That's one of the things I think I forgot to bring up because I've brought this up a couple of times before. That's one of the things I loved doing the most during the the from crisis to crisis era was trying to mentally retcon difficult stories you know, like something like this, like America versus the Justice Society. You know, how in the hell did that story happen post crisis? And so I'm wondering if what you're saying is not the more accurate explanation that it essentially it didn't happen. It couldn't happen. So I, I don't know. It'd be interesting. I mean, it's a, it's all kind of a moot point now, but it'd be interesting to try to pick that apart and, and figure out, well, how could that have happened? Because while the the energy that was, you know, Superman and Batman and Robin and Wonder Woman went on to become other creations, those creations are post the crisis yeah so i don't you know i don't know i you know so would it would it be what's his name uh the the flying fox accusing you know which is just <laughs> I damn think, silly i think, I the think flying so. fox accused the jsa from beyond the grave the general consensus would be who yeah exactly <laughs> and there i just pissed off all the flying fox fans in the audience <laughs> Does he have fans? Because I'm thinking that when it's we the eventually internet. get Everybody there, everybody has a fan. Flying Fox is going to be the Norda of uh, of that team. I'm thinking when we get there. I don't remember there, him but... being that annoying, but not annoying. Just kind of 
just kind of useless, but I don't know. I don't want to tip my hand too too early on that. And at no point during that entire series does he say a nutchuck. I mean, it's just I <laughs> I just I just feel robbed is is what essentially right. it boils down to. So <laughs> All right, we got one last one for this time around, and this one is from my good friend Mike Lacroix, and he writes, Superman's costume, pre-crisis and Bronze Age, etc. He says, Scott, I think the concept you were looking for and trying to articulate was that the pre-crisis Superman's costume, although invulnerable, has no energy-absorbent material to protect the wearer from the force of a projectile but uh, still cannot be pierced by a bullet. Yes, that is exactly what I was trying to say. Uh, A helmet has foam inside to protect the wearer from an impact. Body armor has the Kevlar weave that stretches to absorb and spread the energy along the fibers. Yes, that that is pretty much what I was trying to point out, as as you you put it much better than I did. Uh, Mike, I clearly uh, remember the picture of Pa Kent blasting the baby blanket with a shotgun and the bullets were not passing through. So you were right as well. Yeah, which I never argued. I mean, because I, rem- I know exactly what you're mentioning uh, with that as well. So I, I was never arguing that, that Mike was wrong or I don't think either one of us was arguing that the other was not right. I think we were just trying to find that common ground of, wait, how, how so how would this work kind of thing? At least that's how I remember it. If Scott puts on the pre-crisis Superman costume and Mike uh, wants to test it against bullets, the bullets will pull the fabric along for the ride, but it will not tear. Yeah, I'm not going to try that. Thank you. (laughs) Come on, Scott. (laughs) All in all, that was a fun discussion to listen to. Well, good. I'm glad it was entertaining. Uh, I know that you've selected End of the World as your crisis theme, but man, I was almost heartbroken when Land of Confusion wasn't ch- wasn't chosen. I mean, it even has Superman in the lyrics. And you know, uh, you know I thought about that one a lot because I like that song quite a bit. But if memory serves, I think that, that song's from quite a bit later in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, not that uh, the End of the World song was, was necessarily contemporaneous with Crisis either, but... I don't know. I'm not sure exactly why we went with that one, other than I just I, I think it fit a little bit better. Although I definitely like uh, Land of Confusion as well for the, the reason he mentions. I'm looking forward to the Crisis shows as much as you are. Plug for guest spot. Yes, I know, Mike. I know you're uh, you're bucking for that guest spot. We have something planned. Uh, I think Mike mentioned this last time around. We have something planned. It's going to be a bit down the road, but uh, but hang in there. All you guys that are interested in. in teaming up with us to discuss crisis and crisis related things uh just hang in there keep reminding us keep pestering us about it because uh there is something that we want to do it's just a bit down the road and mike wraps up by saying thanks for the great shows you each put out and again that's from mike lacroix the host of the canadian military history podcast well, I think that'll close out the email section from this episode. Uh, yes, you know, I, I don't think we can can be accused of not <laughs> of not giving them their due. So <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I have the synopsis for the good comic we will be talking about this time out. <laughs> well, hi there. This is Huckleberry Ham. 
And when I'm not busy making movies or TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. My word, the funny books. Old funny books. New funny books. Scary funny books. Movies about funny books. Funny books about movies. British fellers talking about funny books. And lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out and head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arian. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at twotruefreaks.com. Welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. And for our first book, here's Michael Bailey. Alrighty, folks. We have All-Star Squadron number 45, which had a May 1985 uh, cover date. And you know what? This is one of those weird moments where events come together just right. Scott and I, to pull back the curtain, are recording this episode on February 27th, 2015, which I wrote as 2105. Okay, apparently I want it to be, like, 95 years in the future. Uh, this issue of All-Star... I don't even remember the Justice Society of America. <laughs> <laughs> apparently not only will Scott be old in 2105, but drunk. Very good. Um, this issue of All-Star Squadron came out on February 28th, 1985. So, uh, on, on my very non-birthday. My very non-ninth birthday. So I like that we're covering this about 30 years at literally almost 30 years after uh, the release date. So, wow, uh, this this year is actually going to be really weird with that kind of stuff. (laughs) The title of this issue is Give Me Liberty, Give Me Death. 
No or in the middle there. I didn't leave it out. The credits, Roy Thomas, writer-editor, Arvel Jones, penciler, Pablo Marcos, inker, embellisher, Gene D'Angelo, colorist, Cody is the letterer, and the quote, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Leviticus 25.10, inscribed on the Liberty Bell 1753. You know, I really kind of wish they would have gone back and... uh, put on the liberty bell the path of the righteous man is beset <laughs> on all sides <laughs> you know I, I hate to do a tangent right here but on a recent interview uh samuel l jackson said uh that since nick fury is out there wandering the earth like jewels that maybe they could do a jewels nick fury movie and i would be <laughs> totally down with that i just want i just want you to know that <laughs> See, I always thought that the Liberty Bell said, every time this bell rings, an angel gets its wings. That's what I thought it said. <laughs> Alrighty, we open with Miss Liberty, one of the costumed heroes of the Revolutionary War, riding into a redcoat camp, shouting at the Hessians uh, that they need to give the, up the bell which they have stolen, or she will blow them to kingdom come. And when I say kingdom come, I don't mean the 1996 Mark Wade Alex Ross series. Uh, just basically she was going to kill them. It would be interesting if she was trying to blow them to that series. Uh, and probably would have fit in it, in it at some point. Anyways, she throws an explosive which detonates above what they are, where they are holding the bell, causing the bell to come crashing to the ground. But fortunately for Miss Liberty, one of the Hessians gets off a lucky shot and she is thrown from her horse. The bell comes tumbling down towards her. She cries out, (laughs) The same, Is now coming out of Liberty Bell, who is dreaming this whole sequence, and obviously that dream has turned into a nightmare. Johnny Quick shakes her awake before getting her off the train they were riding on to Philadelphia. As they run into the city, Belle tells Johnny of how she was dreaming of her ancestor, Miss Liberty, who was part of uh, the costumed hero set during the Revolutionary War. Miss Liberty fought the British until the very end of the, until nearly the end of the war, when she was killed during a battle with some Hessian troops, much like the nightmare sequence we just saw. They head into Philadelphia, and Belle has them stop for a moment so she can tell him why it's so important that he meet her friend Tom Revere. Tom is not only one of the curators of the Liberty Bell, and the guy that rings it from time to time, giving LB her adrenaline powers, he's also the closest thing to a father she's had since her own died in Poland. The meeting goes fine, and everyone is getting along swimmingly, when suddenly there is a loud explosion. When the smoke clears, there's a giant hole in the wall, and that hole was made and that hole was made by Baron Blitzkrieg, his hetero life mate Zwerg, and the German speedster <laughs> known as Zyklon. They are here for the Liberty Bell, but Tom is quick to take the fight to the Baron while shouting that they are not going to get it. Despite being blind, the Baron is still a powerhouse, and he knocks Tom across the room and into a glass case. Liberty Bell and Johnny check on him and find that Tom is not breathing. Soldiers rush in to investigate the commotion and join Bell as she attacks Zwerg and then the Baron. Blitzkrieg shouts for Bell to get away and that he knows all about her adrenal powers that come from the actual Liberty Bell. That is why he followed her and Johnny as they came to Philadelphia. He wants to know how those powers work. The fight continues to grow in intensity, and finally Blitzkrieg throws Belle out of the window. She is caught by Johnny Quick, but soon Zyklon is hot on their heels, and it's only Johnny's limited ability to fly that saves them. 
Apparently, Zyklon is not the type to give up easily, and he creates an updraft that makes Johnny dizzy enough to drop Bell and fall to the ground himself. Johnny and Zyklon fight, but the Nazi supervillain proves victorious. As he knocks Johnny out, Bell hits the water and nearly drowns. Luckily, Green Lantern, Flash, and Wonder Woman were having a threesome nearby, and they give <laughs> Bell a hand. They... So that's where they came from. I was wondering about that. They head back to the museum and freeze Zwerg from his pinned position under the rubble. Belle feels guilty, like it's her fault that Tom was injured, and dies. Johnny arrives and talks about the red-ass beatdown he received at the hands of Zyklon. With everything that happened, Belle comes to the conclusion that she's been kidding herself all these months. Her supposed powers, even the All-Star Squadron, are not enough. She's not going to stop fighting the Nazis, but she will do so as plain old Libby Lawrence. With that, she leaves the Perisphere. Her mask hit... Did I say the Perisphere? Why did I say the Perisphere? Yeah, they're, they're, not, <laughs> they're not in the Perisphere. They're at Liberty Hall. With that, she leaves... Or whatever the hell it's, it's called. With that... Is that what it's called? Liberty Hall? Probably. I, okay. You know, thinking, being from Pennsylvania and having visited it, you think I would remember. With that, she leaves Liberty Hall, her mask hitting the floor as she does. Johnny runs away, too, heartbroken over Belle leaving. Green Lantern, Flash, and Wonder Woman discuss this and realize what a propaganda victory stealing the Liberty Bell is. Meanwhile, Zyklon and Blitzkrieg discuss how powerful Blitzkrieg will be once he learns how the Liberty Bell works. To be continued. <laughs> yeah, why, why does he think it will cure his blindness? Is that ever addressed in this? Uh, we will find, Maybe we'll find out next issue. Maybe yeah, I haven't. I have not read ahead on this, so I don't. I don't remember. That just seemed really like kind of a stretch. But hopefully, there's some logic behind it somehow. Alrighty, historical notes from All Star Companion Volume Two. In 1779 or later, Miss Liberty battles Hessians, German mercenary troops fighting for the British crown against the American colonies. A foretaste of the 20th century when America and England would be allied against Germany in the world in two world wars. She calls the British Redcoats lobsterbacks, a real term of derision during the Revolutionary War, and is now probably considered to be racist. In a lame joke, Johnny Bell... Johnny Bell. Would it, would it be considered racist? I was making a joke about another term oh, involving... No. I, that, I, I wasn't sure if you were reading that out of the thing. No, no, like, no, okay. no, that was me. I was like, does it really say that in there? Um... <laughs> In a lame joke, Wait. Johnny Quick tells Bell, I've got some riverfront property in Manila I'd like to sell you cheap, a reference to the fact that most of the Philippines had already fallen to the invading Japanese since December 1941. Biting the bullet, Roy Thomas decided to quote-unquote kill off Tom Revere in this issue, even though in Liberty Bell's series and Star Spangled Comics, he was very much alive throughout the middle 1940s. In retrospect, the writer-editor feels he made a mistake in getting rid of Revere. The German word Zyklon, cyclone, became infamous at war's end when it was learned that the Nazis had exterminated millions of people in gas chambers using a poisonous gas called Zyklon B. Flash, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman arrived together because the latter two happened to be visiting J. Flash Garrick in nearby Keystone City. The earlier pattern of having the two trio duplicate scenes from comic cavalcade covers had been followed here in order, the three would have been water skiing. When Baron Blitzkrieg <laughs> steals the Liberty... So, it, on Earth 2, Keystone City was in Pennsylvania? 
That makes sense because Pennsylvania is the Keystone State, but now I always think of Keystone as a Midwest city because it's a sister city yeah. to Central City. So. Central City, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I hadn't even thought of that, but you're absolutely right. When Baron Blitzkrieg steals the Liberty Bell to see if the ring's vibrations can cure his blindness, events foreshadow 1948's All-Star Comics number 41, wherein the second Injustice Society steals the Freedom Bell, the same national treasure under an inexplicable pseudonym. <laughs> I didn't realize the the Liberty Bell was uh, trademarked. Uh, besides the alternate cover for the issue, the Golden Age Gallery features a full-page 1942 ad for DC's eighth monthly anthology comics with May cover dates. Uh, let's see. Miss Liberty made her debut in Tomahawk number 81, July-August 1962, and soon became a virtual co-star in that series set America's Revolutionary War. The cover is probably by the interior artist Fred Ray. The writer of Miss Liberty, Frontier Heroine, was reportedly France Ed Heron. Uh, and the, uh... Why is he thanking my dad? Because <laughs> there's a cover in here to the Tomahawk issue, and it says, Thanks to Bob Hughes and Bob Bailey for the scan. My dad... I know it's not my dad, I'm sorry. I, I just thought that was funny. <laughs> Has he come home yet? Well, no, that's Bill Bailey. Oh, Bill Bailey, that's right. Bob Bailey comes home every night, damn it. He doesn't leave <laughs> his <drunk>. family. <laughs> I'm just glad you got the reference. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I know. Dude, my last name is Bailey. Okay? <laughs> so you've heard them all, so I've right? I've heard Bill, I've heard Beetle, you know. <laughs> In fact, my ninth grade history teacher, Mr. Fritzinger, uh, whenever I would walk into the, the class, I'd hear, Beetle! Uh, so, don't you hate that? Uh, I, I liked him, though, so it, it was okay. Uh, so you killed him last? <laughs> I didn't kill any of my teachers that they can prove. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you got on this one, sir? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, right off the bat, it's funny. I'm going to start at the end of the book rather than the beginning because I just noticed something that shot all kinds of holes in everything we've been talking about, the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Now, I don't usually read the letters pages or reread, rather, the letters pages. I guess I should be doing that as part of this, but I'm just, you know, I tend to just be a lazy bastard. But this just happened to catch my eye here. There's a little teeny tiny letter from Jeffrey T. Bauer that says, uh, Dear Editor, I've only begun collecting All-Star Squadron since issue 31, and I don't understand this Earth 2, Earth X, Earth Prime business. I know we live on Earth 1, and that's about it. Please explain what century or time these different Earths <laughs> are in. So I guess that, you know, there's some credence to what Marv Wolfman asserts that it's just too confusing for some people. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because... Um since I've been plugging the crisis show over on from crisis to crisis, I don't feel bad about mentioning from crisis to crisis here, but Je sure. But Jeffrey and I got into a discussion about that in our prelude to zero hour episode, uh, mm -hmm. because Jeffrey feels that it was the right decision to make to bring all the earths together because it might've mm -hmm. been confusing to new readers. So, you know, it's easy for us, you know, as people that love the concept, and you know, to go, I don't know why everybody had such a hard time with it. But, you know, maybe there were people that were coming into it cold that didn't quite understand it. Now, right. the only, what I will say to that, though, is what happened when they figured it out? Like, I can see initial confusion. That, that's 
totally on board. And whether or not you like the concept after that is secondary to it being confusion, confusing, you know? So you can not like the idea of multiple Earths, but still understand that this is Earth 1 and that's Earth 2 and that's Earth 3. So, you know, I, th- there wasn't a scientific test with the, that was peer-reviewed that really put uh, Wolfman's hypothesis to the test, I think is what I'm saying. Right. So... You know, again, kudos to Roy Thomas for being a class act because he actually answers Jeffrey's letter by giving a full explanation, whereas my answer would be, hey, don't sweat that shit because it's all going away very shortly. (laughs) Well, he probably couldn't say that at the time. (laughs) (laughs) All right, what do I have on this for specific notes? Um, I don't care for this cover. Uh, There's an alternate cover that's shown as a pinup in the back of the book that I actually like a whole lot better. That pinup, I think, is really, really nice. Why they didn't go with that, I do not know. It's not that the cover that they went with is bad or anything. It's just, I don't know, it's a little awkwardly staged. Everybody looks a little too gangly to me. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure what's going on here, but uh, I, I do like the, the one as the pinup much better, uh, given the choice between the two. I will say this. Liberty Bell, we hate to see you go, but we <laughs> love to watch you leave. <laughs> uh, the opening splash scene is right out of Miss Liberty's first appearance in Tomahawk number uh, 81, which I thought was actually very cool. Now, I have very limited exposure to Tomahawk. Most of my exposure to Tomahawk actually comes during Crisis on Infinite Earths. He ends up teaming up with Wonder Girl and somebody else, I think in Teen Titans, but I can't even remember where that happens. But we'll cover it. It'll We'll get there eventually. And I covered one issue... I think one story actually from one issue of Tomahawk uh, back on back to the bins some time ago. And it was shit. However, (laughs) that said, yeah, I heard son of Tomahawk was not as good as Tomahawk. So (laughs) I, I I don't even, what it, what is, was there a son? of? Oh, I thought you said son of Tomahawk. I'm sorry. I misheard you because of the the Skype connection. Oh, okay. So, so it was just an issue of Tomahawk then. Yeah, it was just an issue of Tomahawk, but it was. Yeah, I it was haven't crap. been drinking. I promise. Well, it was. It was something I had picked up out of a. Gosh, I think it was even cheaper than a fifty cent. But I want to say it was maybe a quarter at most. Something I picked up dirt cheap. You know what's funny here? I'm actually going to have a Michael Bailey moment because I actually remember where it, where it was. I picked it up. It was at the Titans over by Cumberland Mall. I, I picked it up out of a out of a. I think it was a quarter Is bin. That, the, that was Tucker, right? Is that the, Tucker? Oh, the name of the town? You mean? Yeah, was that oh, the Tucker I, I Titans? Uh, it could be. I, or was I'm, it? I'm Smyr- sure. I don't know where the Cumberland Mall is. You know, I live in this area. Oh, it's over on the over on the west side of Atlanta. Okay, so it's one of those malls you don't go to anymore. Unfortunately, <laughs> when I worked there, it was a nice mall, but unfortunately, it's. One and then of those when you left, there. it just went downhill. It did. It, did it went straight have... to hell because I wasn't there anymore. <laughs> See what happens? Hey, I put an airline out of business, so. value jet fired me and then two weeks it was out of two weeks later it was out of business never you know this never mind the the fact that they put a plane in the ground in 1996 but that's entirely (laughs) beside the point hey and for people who are like mike how can you joke about a plane crash i'm not really i worked reservations for value jet in the summer of 1996 i was at work the day that crash happened and it was a it was a it was 
it was not a good three weeks after that. Uh, right. Because people call would call up the reservations line and just bitch us out for still being in business. So uh, I joke about it just to kind of like get over the fact that it was a kind of a traumatic experience. <laughs> but no, I uh, I fished that uh, that tomahawk issue out of a out of a quarter bin at a at that uh, Titans because it had a, a beautiful uh, Neil Adams cover on it. Which was that was really the only reason I bought it. So it was a gorgeous cover, yeah, a really crappy story. However, that said, you know, hearing this little bit of history about Miss Liberty makes me very, very curious to check out her adventures in that title because I've got a soft spot for historical superheroes, and what I mean by that is, you know, you, you take basically the superhero trope and and project it backward in time because. Uh, a number of years ago, I'm I'm not sure how old this title is now. This goes back, gosh, it's probably pushing 10 years at this point. Uh, but there was a great series that I can't remember the name of the comic book company. I'm looking at the cover here, but unfortunately their, their name of the company is not on the cover. But there was a series called The Black Coat. Did you ever read any of these, Mike? No. It was basically Batman pre-Revolutionary War. And it was damn good stuff. It was really good. I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. I think there were at least two minis of that, if I'm not mistaken. I have one of them. It was called uh, A Call to Arms. I know there was another one as well. I, I think this actually might be the second mini. I'm not sure. But anyway, I, I like that sort of thing. Now, here's a question for you. Now, I know this will be a moot point very shortly, but I, I think it bears asking... Does this mean that both Earth 1 and Earth 2 had a Tomahawk and possibly even a, a, a Miss Liberty? Or is this establishing Tomahawk as an Earth 2 character? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, thought number one, I guess the point's moot in about six months anyways. Right, uh, but, right. Um, you know, that that's kind of funny because it, it, it goes back to Steel, the indestructible man. Because mm-hmm. he was originally supposed to be an Earth 1 character. Right. Uh, set in World War Two, but when Roy Thomas started this, he kind of made him an Earth Two character that would eventually go to Earth One uh, later right. and have a family of some kind because his grandson was in the Justice League. Uh, but I never was it ever established that Tomahawk. Well, yeah, it was during that Justice League JSA crossover, wasn't it? Didn't Tomahawk show up in that Time Lord of Time story that had Jonah Hex in it as well? Mm, I don't think he's in it. Uh, it. To my recollection, it was Jonah. Oh shit! You know what? I'll have to pull up the cover here real quick. Let me see. It was uh, Jonah. I'm not doing that at all. <laughs> which which one are you talking? Are you talking the just the Justice League one with the with the Lord of Time or? Uh, I thought it was one of the crossovers. And now Firefox is not behaving. So. Well, the one the one that I was thinking of was uh, JLA's one eighty one ninety eight and one ninety nine. That's what I was thinking of, but that's not a that's not a crossover with the Justice Society. That one's just where the JLA are menaced by the Lord of Time, and in that story, it's Batlash, Cinnamon, Jonah Hex, and Scalp Hunter. Is that the one you're talking about? Or are you talking the one that we covered where Jonah had like the flying horse and all that? Is that the one you're talking about? That had, uh, like, Viking Prince and... Because that one had Jonah... 
the Black Pirate, the Viking Prince, and oh, and Miss Liberty. Miss Liberty was in that story. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So that means that okay, well that means that there was a Miss Liberty of Earth One then. Yeah. So that must mean that there's that there would be two of them. That there were if there was a Miss Liberty on Earth One and Earth Two, then there must be a Tomahawk on Earth. Yeah, on I Earth was two. I was thinking Tomahawk was on that cover, but he's not. You're right. It's Enemy Ace and the Black Pirate, Miss Liberty, right. Viking Prince and Jonah standing over uh the justice league and the justice society so right okay i'm remembering something that didn't happen again (laughs) no you're right i forgot about enemy ace but yeah you're right oh that's the one with the the, with the really weird looking the the dinosaurs that look like crocodiles yes exactly (laughs) all right what else moving along on this uh page five i have a note here let's see page five Oh, yes. Page five, panel one. The guy at the very back in the glasses and the hat reading Life magazine. Is this a nod to Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember when when Indy boards the plane and there's the spy that's all the way at the back of the plane reading Life magazine? He's dressed almost exactly the (laughs) same way. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. Yeah, I think that's kind of neat if it is. Very subtle. Page seven... Third panel. All right. So in the second panel, Johnny says, uh, you feel that dream means something, right? Only natural. But if you believe that, I've got some riverfront property in Manila I'd like to sell you cheap. And in the third panel, uh, Liberty Bell says, bad joke, Johnny. And he says, yeah. Uh, Because Manila was hit particularly hard during the war. So, yeah, that would be kind of a tasteless joke is really what it comes down to. Yeah, Johnny, you got any Titanic jokes you want to bring out next? Yeah, that's kind of wrong. Uh, Page 9, Baron Blitzkrieg! I love this guy. I love Baron Blitzkrieg. I even like uh, Zwerg, too. His hetero life mate, (laughs) yes. Yeah. (laughs) Now, this is the first appearance of Zyklon and... uh, I had a note here about the Zyklon B thing, but you beat me to it on, on that whole thing. Well, that was technically, Roy Thomas notes. beat you to it. but <laughs> I don't know how I knew that, but I knew that, so I, I had actually written it down as a, as a note as well. Um, page 10, poor Tom Revere. And I like that, uh, that Roy Thomas admits that he actually screwed up in, in continuity. You would think that the continuity guy would catch something like that, but yeah, he missed it, apparently. Page 11... Uh, panel three, I love uh, Libby decking Blitzkrieg, and you know his teeth are rat- you know his teeth are showing like ee, you know like he's, she's just rattled him really good, uh, which does beg the question though is how strong is Liberty Bell when she gets her whole adrenaline rush thing because this is a guy that held his own with Superman. Yeah, no, that's so uh, well that, his his powers are always kind of dicey, anyways. Right. So this is true. <laughs> I guess he didn't see it coming. <laughs> Page 15, I like the, uh, uh, in the second panel there, the super speed, how Johnny is both hitting and bitch slapping yeah. uh, Zyklon. It's just like, wah, 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 wah. I mean, he's really laying into him. You don't see this depicted all that often with speedsters fighting each other, but this is really cool that they're really laying into each other so fast that the eye can't follow it. That's that's actually pretty neat. Yeah, they did a good job with that when the on the Flash the current flash series when the reverse flash showed up the fight Mm -hmm. scenes were really good 
Like, Barry got his ass handed to him, but it, it was really interesting to see how they... Seeing on screen them running through the city and running through a particular area was very well done. So, hmm. that's what I thought of when I when I was reading this, actually. <laughs> Page uh, 19, panels 1 and 2. Speaking of The Flash, I, I love this little moment of rivalry between Johnny Quick and The Flash. Because... Uh, the Flash says to Johnny, he says, Whoa, fella, he says, that's not how Bell spins it. If we'd been here too, and Johnny cuts him off, says, You think you could have stopped Zyklon when I couldn't? And I like that. I like that Johnny Quick, while he has a lot of hero worship for the Flash, at the same time, it's almost like he, he's always trying to prove himself. Like like he's trying to prove that he's just as good or or I don't know if he wants to be necessarily better, but he wants to be as as regarded as his hero. And I, I think that's neat. Uh, it gives a little character insight into him. It shows a little bit of insecurity there. And it also it also fits with his personality in general. I would have had a feeling, even though you know there's more of a personal connection because they're both speedsters, if Green Lantern or Wonder Woman had said it, he probably would have had the same reaction. Because mm, That's true. It, it, it's, part of it's probably, you know, am I fast enough? But also part of it's probably, you know, that thing of, you know, when, when, when you've screwed up something at work and someone comes in and says, well, why didn't you do this? It's just like, well, well you've done better. So, right. That sort of thing. Right. That's a good point. Well, Johnny always kind of strikes me as not terribly secure in himself anyway. No, not you know, really. Like he's, he's always fighting to, to prove himself. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Uh, my last note on this, honestly, is uh, I really like how Wonder Woman is drawn in most of the issue. There's a couple panels that are a little bit weird, like the top panel on the very last page. She looks a little mannish right there, but on most of the other panels, she looks really, really good. Uh, particularly, I like the the shot on page, where is it here? Page 18, where she's lifting the debris off of Zwerg. Uh, I just, I really like that. I, I like the stance and, and the way she's drawn. She she looks uh, very, uh, very feminine. She looks very attractive. And again, I, I, don't, I just don't recall Wonder Woman during this era usually looking particularly attractive. She always looked kind of just generic. Almost like how she was drawn on the Super Friends a lot of the time. Yeah. Whereas here, I, I, I like the way she's depicted. I like the way, I like I particularly like the way her hair is depicted here. It's not just the you know the straight down the back. You know, it's got the curls and all that. She just looks very, uh, very cute. I like that. Well, that's pretty much all I got on this one. I I enjoyed it. It was, um, you know, it wasn't the most dynamic story so far. It was kind of just the setup for wherever they're going. But I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. Yeah, I uh, I liked the cover. I could I had some problem with like you with kind of the figure work, but I uh, you know it's it's interesting seeing all these characters kind of together. And uh, Liberty Bell has asked for days. Uh, apparently, I don't know why that's the first thing I'm attracted to, but I blame you know the cover artist because he drew the buttocks so shapely. <laughs> so uh, the first sequence. I gotta tell you, you want to get me on board with something right away? You show me a re- like 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 a, a Miss Liberty type character, because it, mm-hmm. it, it's it's one of the things where I will you know I'm a DC guy, so it, you know this next statement's not going to come as a surprise to anybody, but I think DC 
has it all over Marvel when it comes to their Western characters and their Revolutionary War characters and the fact that it gives the universe this like uh, this like history this this like solid like even back in Revolutionary times there were superheroes sort of and mm-hmm. I always loved the look of Miss Liberty uh, with the, with the pointed hat and the the domino mask. And, uh, you know, the, the, the pants are a little out there, but it's just, it, I love patriotic looking characters. So, yeah. And I like that, you know, they're, they're fighting Hessians. So in terms of all-star squadron, we have Miss Liberty fighting the Germans and then we have Liberty Bell fighting the Germans. Right. So there's a nice little, uh, nice little, uh, dic- uh like a synchronicity there. As George Lucas would say, it all rhymes. So, page four, uh, we get a little cross-company future uh, crossover here with Howard Stark hanging out in the uh, train. With uh, There's a dude in the, uh, the right-hand side of the page that has black hair and a short little pencil-thin mustache. So, uh, and what he's thinking is, what a crazy bitch. Um, <laughs> the whole sequence on pages five and six of one, I love that Johnny is comforting Liberty Bell. Uh, you know, as a as a good boyfriend would, but also I like the origin sequence on page six, where you know you find out that Miss Liberty was a was a uh, nurse uh, or a quote unquote nurse type, as she right. says, and that you know she she hung out with Haw- Tomahawk and son of Tomahawk and died at the end of the, you know towards the end of the Revolutionary War. It's just. Again, it just gives me the sense that there is so much more to this universe than just the 40s or the present. So, I really liked what I liked, because I loved this issue. And I think what I loved about it is that Roy Thomas spent enough time at the beginning of the issue setting everything up that the fight actually meant something. You know, we've seen Tom Revere through the course of this series, and he was always the old guy she would call to go ring her bell, basically. And here we find out that, you know, he was the closest thing that she had to a father after her own father died. And her taking Johnny to meet him is basically her taking her boyfriend to meet her dad. Right. And that was really cool. I like that. And I like the fact that they're doing it in costume. So, um, Baron Blitzkrieg, man, again, you want to get me on board? Put Baron Blitzkrieg with anything and I will be happy. Mm-hmm. And I love, love, love Zyklon. Don't, yeah. don't know anything about him as a character, but he's a German evil Nazi speedster, and that's all I need to know. So I, I like that uh, Thomas is trying to beef up the supervillains of this series and giving us a, 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 a you know, like a, a super speedster who's evil, essentially. Uh, and I, I like the fight. And his fight with Johnny, you're absolutely right, is great. These two yeah. are just going at it. And Johnny almost has the upper hand, but man, Zyklon just owns him right there at the end. Uh, hitting him with what looks like a rock uh, on page 16. Yeah, it was a rock, and he just throws it down. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he picks up a, a rock off the ground and baffs his head in with it. Uh, yeah, it's just... I just I just dug this. And I like on the the last panel of page 16... That shot of Liberty Bell, like her eyes open, realizing that she's woken up underwater, uh, thinking, oh my god, I really liked that. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to joke on page 17, 
Uh, and I know that the reason why we keep seeing Green Lantern and Wonder Woman flash together is that they appeared on covers together, and so Roy Thomas can, you know, spin it that, well, okay, at this point they were doing this, and at this point they were doing that. I'm just thinking they had a thing going on. Ever since that picnic <laughs> in the uh, in the preview thing from Justice League number 193, she and, and Alan and Jay, there's, there, there's something there, I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, when he's around Diana, Jay's like, Joan who? And I always got that Alan Scott was probably somebody that dated quite a bit anyways. But, uh... Well, she's making up for all that, uh, you know, no man on the <laughs> island time. <laughs> With a lot of men on her island? Is that what you're saying? There you go. Uh, Liberty Bell quitting could be really contrived. But I think with the dialogue on pages 19 and 20... You know, Roy Thomas pleads his case, essentially. And it's all for the story, I realize that. But I actually really enjoyed the drama of her quitting at this moment. And it's it's kind of funny. Johnny runs off. And The Flash has an interesting explanation. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Wonder Woman asks, where is he, where, where is he going? You haven't been in man's world very long, Diana, so maybe you didn't know. But when a man here knows he's going to cry, he usually wants to do it alone. And uh, But Alan Scott's all business. Still can't figure what's Blitzkrieg want with the Liberty Bell uh, especially intact. Uh, if, he wanted a, if he just wanted a propaganda victory, right, he probably would have destroyed it right here. No, actually no. Stealing the Liberty Bell is more of a propaganda victory. You know, just destroying it would have been a morale, you know, would have been bad for morale. But think about the Germans capture and are holding captive one of our iconic pieces of American history. That's more of a, a, a propaganda victory, to me, anyways. Right. Uh, and good ending, too. I, uh, I, I, I like, you know, um, Baron Blitzkrieg ranting. But again, I have to agree with you. What... What does he think? Did, did he just like, you know, Liberty Bell has adrenal powers with uh, the Liberty Bell. I wonder if that'll cure my blindness. <laughs> you know, I'm overweight. I wonder if I use my wife's inhaler for her asthma. I wonder if that'll do something <laughs> for me. So, I don't know. I loved this issue, though. I really did. I, I thought it was... It had a lot of character in it. It had some great fight scenes. I mean, it was everything I want from this title. So I was I was very satisfied. Especially when it's so much better than the Infinity Incorporated issue. Oh, come on now. No, no, I'm not going to come on now. <laughs> Alright, are we ready to get into that masterpiece? Sure. <laughs> I heard quotes. How do you hear quotation marks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I figured that's all we got on this why don't you uh take us through infinity incorporated number 14 there scott all right sit, sit down make yourselves comfortable kitties you're gonna love this one <sighs> all right so infinity incorporated number 14 this is the may 1985 cover dated issue this was on sale february 21st 1985 according to mike's amazing world of comics uh, the original cover price on this was a buck twenty-five. Cover is by Todd McFarlane and Tony DiZaniga, who also provide the interiors. Now, the cover on this one, man, I don't even know how to describe it. 
there is cover copy that says chaos in the key of chroma and you have chroma who is uh, uh basically an androgynous albino and he she is using kirby crackle to uh to like in, in you know in swirl and capture obsidian and norda and then all around in in this very funky psychedelically colored uh cover you've got the other uh members of infinity incorporate you've got uh silver scarab and fury and nuclon and jade also on there uh believe it or not i actually kind of dig this cover as really? weird as it is yeah okay. that, it's it's okay um so although the cover says Chaos in the Key of Chroma, the title inside the book is actually Concert in the Key of Chroma, just for those keeping score at home. Roy Thomas was the writer slash editor. Todd McFarlane is listed as guest penciler, and we're going to be talking about that uh, afterwards in the notes section. Tony Dizniga is the inker slash embellisher. Dan Thomas co-plotter. L. Lois Buhalis is the letterer, and that is not a name I am familiar with at all. And A. Tallinn and A. Roy are listed as the colorists. Quote for this issue is, we all come from our own little planets. That's what makes life interesting. And that's a quote from the Bishop's Wife uh, from 1947. Bishop's Wife was a film, I do believe. Oh, yes, it says here from the film, The Bishop's Wife. In West uh, Westwood County, let me start. Oh, I thought there. you were about to say in West Philadelphia, born and raised in the background <laughs> is where I spent most of my days. In Westwood, California, Obsidian and Northwind, in their civilian identities of Todd Rice and Norda Cantrell, are out on a double date, waiting in line for tickets to see the new movie Supergirl. Norda's date is kind of into him, but poor Todd is just getting the cold so- cold shoulder from his. Just then, a couple of gang punks drive by and, seeing rival gang members outside the theater, lobby bomb into the crowd where it is caught by Norda. Like a dumbass, Todd tells him to get rid of it. He does, and the device explodes harmlessly overhead. Violence breaks out and gunplay is involved, during which Todd learns that he is bulletproof while in his shadow form of Obsidian. Meanwhile, uh, Norda sheds his shitty disguise and pursues the drive-by gang, dropping into the backseat of their ride. Mistaking him for a black gang member from Watts, they pull over where one surrenders and the other gets curb-stomped, more or less. Curb-stomped? By Norda. How friggin' humiliated will this guy be at the next clubhouse meeting? (laughs) (laughs) Afterwards, Norda scores a second round with, uh, with his girl for a concert in Griffith Park tomorrow night while Todd is told that he's, quote unquote, not my type by his date. Feeling low, Todd asks to crash at Stellar Studios with Norda and they arrive just in time to see the star rocket racer return from issue number 13 bearing nuclon jade fury and the silver scarab they also brought crazy pants rose canton along with them too after jade tucks rose into bed uh, having invited her to stay with them she is compelled to call brainwave jr to check in with him he's on the road and rather cryptic uh, cryptic about what he's up to silver scarab meanwhile receives a call from the police chief asking the team to provide security for the aforementioned concert in Griffith Park. 
And so, the next night, Infinity Inc. is on the scene as a rowdy crowd awaits the arrival of the band, the Stone Dead. They finally show up and are just getting started when mysterious, colorful swirls in the air herald the arrival of what looks like an albino rainbow raider. His name is Chroma, and he takes the stage to sing a song of devastation, death, and doom. The crowd loves him, but it's still Infinity Inc.'s job to escort him off the stage, so they attempt to do so. This, of course, sparks a debate that ends with Obsidian clocking Chroma butt good and knocking him out. To the roar of a displeased audience, Jade forms a green energy bubble and whisks the weird intruder and her friends away from the scene while Obsidian wonders if all this wasn't Chroma's plan in the first place. Next issue, Song Without End. Amen? Okay, Mike. It is confession time, buddy. Yeah? I lied to you earlier. I didn't forget my all-star companion volume two i wanted you to read all-star companion volume two because i have a surprise guess what i have in my hands oh you got one i finally broke down and i got myself all-star companion volume four so (laughs) now i've got one too Yay! so historical now i get the biggest kick out of this i don't know if you've looked ahead on this but Evidently, Roy Thomas doesn't think much more of this story than you do because there are barely any notes for issues 14 and 15. (laughs) So, the notes for issue 14. First appearance of Marcy Cooper, Northwind's new girlfriend. So I guess that means she's going to be sticking around a while. Her sister and roommate Sharon does not take a similar shine to Obsidian. (laughs) Poor Obsidian. Also, this issue is the debut of Infinity's custom helicopter. And often in these, there are also uh, pictures with notes on them as well. We don't always go into these because sometimes the, the, you know, you have to kind of see the picture to get what's going on here. But uh, I want to go ahead and address this one real quick. Spawn of Spokane, it says. Todd McFarlane on uh, the left in our photo. And there's a a really kind of weird picture of, of Todd McFarlane here. Says a young Canadian then dwelling in Spokane, Washington, has said that because he felt his draftsmanship was not yet where he wanted it to be, used a lot of quote-unquote props as design elements in his Infinity Ink art to make his pencils look more artistic. Here in his debut issue number 14, he plays around with the images of a telephone, and then it shows uh, one of the panels from the issue. But uh, there's a lot of this sort of thing in this particular issue. Uh, Todd had done his first pro comics work for Marvel on the short-lived, uh, short-lived feature called Scorpio Rose in 1984. During this period, he mar- mailed art samples to various editors, including Roy Thomas out in California. It was Dan, Roy's wife, who persuaded Roy to uh, make Todd regular pencil- penciler on Infinity Incorporated. From there, he later moved on to Marvel in The Incredible Hulk, then Spider-Man, then to his own creation, Spawn, which made his fame and fortune at Image Comics, a company he helped form. Sounds a little bit about uh, Todd McFarlane. So, what do you got for notes on this one? I'm sorry, It's funny to go along with that. Apparently, you know, Todd's got a kind of a reputation of being, like, you know, arrogant and, you know, outspoken. Uh, Mm -hmm. Apparently, during this time period... Uh, according to Rob Liefeld, he he was a little more laid, like a little more 
I don't want to say respectful, but he all he never called Roy Thomas Roy. He called him Mister Thomas. Uh, even that's like a couple cool. years later, so that's kind of interesting. I always thought that it's a nice little character quirk where he at the beginning, you know, was respectful of his elders. I guess you can say so. And then he would go on and 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 make a bajillion dollars off of Spawn. Um, <laughs> would you mind if I spoiled one thing about next time around? Sure. There are no notes for number fifteen. <laughs> there is. I, I'm looking. I'm. I was just double checking to make sure I'm right about that. But there are literally no notes for ne- the next issue. So I wonder if that means this story um, really doesn't get much better than this. Um, I'm not a really big fan of the cover, and that's mainly because of the color design. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember seeing this cover like a bunch of times, like in the comic shop or before I was getting to it. And I was just like. Man, this isn't something that would have made me want to pick it up off the shelf if I was, like, buying it back in 1985. So, uh, and that may have to do with the fact that Nord is on it. Okay, uh, <laughs> Todd McFarlane's artwork. I, you know, I, I'm cutting him, like, metric yards of slack, quote-unquote, to, uh, because this is really early in his career. Uh, and he would improve dramatically over the next couple of years. Having said that, all of the black and white images on the borders really distracts from the overall art throughout the entire issue. Uh, I understand he was doing it to look artsy, but it really doesn't do much for the storytelling, is what I'm saying. Um, Okay, Todd, how much do you suck that Norda's date likes him and yours doesn't like you? Uh, I just had to get that out of the way right away. It's interesting, though, that you know he's from kind of an Arctic region, and they're saying he's from Africa. Was was yeah, Fyther that made Fythera in Africa? No, I didn't think so. No, not at all. I, I think shit. I think you know I didn't make a note of it, but somewhere in here, I think he even makes the comments. I, I want to say he says it. Yeah, to, that he's not from Africa. To Todd, that like basically he says, "Why am I?" You know, yeah. Where the hell is it? Here, I know it's in here somewhere. Where he basically questions, "Why did you come up with this for me anyway?" Because I'm not even from there. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not finding it. But uh, page six, having been critical of the art, I do like Todd obsidian up in that top yeah. panel. That does look really cool. Uh, and apparently, uh, the Panthers are fighting the Cobra Kai. So, uh, that's all I can get out of that. Um, here it is, Mike. It it actually, it's, it's right here. It starts on page one. Um, she asks him, she says, do they show a lot of American movies over in Africa, Norda? And he says, Africa, Uh, I, uh, I suppose so. And then you turn to page two and he says, actually, Marcy, despite these robes, my country is not actually in Africa. It's er rather further North. So yeah, I thought it was more like Arctic circle. Like you said. Uh, pages 7 and 8. Norda's date is wearing a t-shirt that says, I love unicorns. This explains everything you need to know about this girl being in love with Norda. Just wanted to put that out there. Uh, page 8, okay. Norda landing in the back of the car is actually kind of funny. I, I, I enjoyed that. And it's not that I don't like the picture of Spawn, I mean Obsidian, I mean Extant, 
that is on that page. It's just, it doesn't have anything to do with the story, so it kind of gets in the way. Uh, page 9, Todd McFarlane manages to do something that I have that we have not seen in this series. Norda looks kind of like a badass. I, I'm sure it's a fluke. It, it, it has to be. <laughs> uh... <laughs> And when I got to page 10 and and they're back at, at, at the Stellar Studios and they land and everyone's like kind of catching up with each other, I realized that while in this issue I was curious where Jade and Nuclon are, I wasn't curious at all last issue where Obsidian and Nuclon were. It didn't <laughs> matter. So, uh, page 13. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Are, are we lumping them together now? Because I... I like Obsidian. Uh, Norda, I got no use for whatsoever. It sounded like I was lumping them together. I just wasn't curious about Obsidian in the last issue. I got you. The the sequence with Brainwave Jr., I love that Roy Thomas doesn't come out and say it, but it was basically Brainwave Jr. manipulating Jenny on a mental level to to call him. Right. Because how does she know the number for the payphone? Well, it's it took me a minute while I was synopsizing this to figure that out. But if you look at the art at the bottom of the page, and let's see, that's page page twelve. See the shot of her eyes. Yeah, there's like little swirls around it. Yeah, so McFarlane's giving us a little visual clue that that he's compelling her to call, and I, I thought that was interesting. And then when she's uh, talking to rose afterwards rose says well why don't you call him back and she says i would if i could remember the number i dialed so that was totally him manipulating her and but i just love that it's there and you have to figure it out right right like it's it's not spelled out for us um okay art critique uh page 14 the second to last panel not the hollywood panel but the one above it how the hell is Fury's hand there, but we're seeing her ass? She's got her hand behind her back. Is that how it would look? Yeah, I guess it would. Eh. It's really awkward, yeah, it, though. It, no, it, I, thought, I thought the same yeah, thing. It, it, it's not... Her costume is awkward anyways, but... Um, you know... I gotta hand it to Todd McFarlane. He he's really trying to make Norda something. Uh, maybe he liked drawing the character. I don't know. Uh, it will never you know make me think that it's of anything. <laughs> like he, <laughs> he's not the worthless waste of space that he really is. Uh, page sixteen, bottom panel, cross the rainbow bridge of Asgard, <laughs> where the booming heavens roar. <laughs> Chroma, most useless character or most useless character ever. I I'm really I'm hoping that I'm misremembering the next issue and maybe everything kind of pulls out, but this whole thing at the end being all trippy and that humans are the you know are the only species that can see their own demise coming, etc. 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 Artistically, it's fine, especially Nuclon on page 20, uh, 22, 
that top panel with Nuclon in the shadows is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. I just, I completely checked out at the end of this issue. I didn't care at all about what was going on. I didn't like the character. I didn't like where the story was going. And it was just like, I'm, I realized that most of what I really like in Infinity Incorporated, I finally remembered, really happens during and after the crisis. It's like, right. it's like this period right before that is really dodgy uh, until mm-hmm. Helix shows up. So I guess I'm just going to have to slog through it. But uh, what did you think? Well, uh, <laughs> you know, you and I were, uh, we were texting uh, day before yesterday and you said that you weren't a fan of this issue. My reaction initially was, aww, but that was before I had to synopsize it. <laughs> Having now done that, I realize how little story there actually is to this. So I think my positive reaction to rereading it stems entirely from the artwork. Okay. So, yeah. Um, you know, like I said before, despite the garish colors and the inherent lameness of the villain, uh, I, I kind of dig the cover. The The colors are really out there or what. Um, digging into the book, you know, the the thing that he does constantly throughout the book, I like that he admitted in the companion that this was him just thinking, you know, he, he didn't think enough of his style at this point, so he was trying to project something into it to make it distinctive. It certainly does. It, it does that. I mean, there's nothing at this time that looked like this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's why... McFarlane made such a splash as he did just because he was doing something that you just didn't see in comics at this time. So he, he was very unique. The question that I think we're going to have to continually keep asking as we're going through this, this era where he is now the artist is, you know, did it work then? you know, how did it work then? But also does it, does it work now? Because, when I first started digging into this, I was like, oh, yes, you know, and, and really digging it. But then about halfway into the book, I'm kind of like, all right, Todd, you know, dial it back a little bit. Because it does become distracting very quickly. It, it kind of loses its novelty by at least halfway through the issue. You're kind of like, all right, can you not put so much shit into every border and, you know, the the weird layouts of the panels and things like that? When he When he dials down his style a little bit. Like, uh, I'm looking here specifically at pages 14 and 15. When you look at just those pages, and he has none of that, you know, just weird border stuff going on, and it's pretty much straight-up comics here, it works very well. I mean, he really has a handle on page layout and and how to break down panels. He, in a lot of ways, especially on page 14, it's kind of, to me, it seems like it's very imitative of... Perez, you know, so if you're going to steal, steal from the best, you know, it, it's when he gets into the really, you know, again, putting a lot of stuff in borders and all that, but even looking at a page like 16, you know, using props to kind of tell the story a little bit does work when they're a part of the story and not just a, a distraction on the side. So he uses, like, the amplifier to show, okay, the concert started, and then, you know, the CB radio or whatever as, uh, 
as uh, Nuclon is communicating with uh, whoever the hell control is mm-hmm. at this point. I, I don't know. It must be the police, I guess. Probably. You know, so these different elements. So it, it can work. And I, I think we're going to see it develop over time. I mean, this is the very first issue with him. And, you know, he is definitely a newbie at this point. So, you know, I, I you know, like you said, I cut it a lot of slack for that reason. Um. Uh, so again, back to the beginning of the story here. Um, Supergirl. Now this is cute. I, you know, I'm sure it was just intended to be a cute little nod to the fact that the Supergirl movie was out there. But you know, playing continuity geek for a minute, this can't be the same movie because wouldn't Supergirl the movie give away Superman's secret identity? Nope. I mean, it does, right? Nope. Oh. Yes, you're right. Sorry, I was about to say no, but she, uh, Linda Lee, does say that she is Clark Kent's cousin. So that right. in a in a in a roundabout way does give it uh d- does give it away. So yeah, that's specifically the scene I was thinking of is when she goes and sets herself up at the or- orphanage would give away his his secret identity. So yeah, so that movie couldn't work the same way on Earth too. But again, that's being super nitpicky. Um. Let's see here. Page. I had a note here. Page two and three. Yeah, let's see. Page two and three. Panel one and. Oh, okay. I, I know what it was. It's just I, I just liked the look, um, of the art. I mean, right out of the gate, the guy's got chops. I mean, he he's definitely like I say. You can definitely see that this is him starting out. He hasn't quite developed the you know the the signature Todd McFarlane style, but he definitely has art chops. I mean you look at that very first you know the panel that's basically going across the top of pages two and three, there's a lot of detail in there. And one thing that I think really works on this is that I think that Dizaniga is a really good fit because I think he's he's bringing a kind of a stabilizing influence to this because I don't know if McFarlane at this stage of the game was prepared to be as far out as he would get eventually later where he gets very stylistic but if he was so inclined I think somebody like Dizaniga would would help tone that back a little bit cuz you can see sort of some traces of it here and there like the the norda that's in the border on page three right there that's kind of signature todd mcfarlane but mm-hmm. but dialed back a little bit as well so norda's girlfriend marcy she's into freaks huh okay whatever uh page four this sequence with norda is just flat ridiculous he catches the bomb uh-huh and then, I mean, is he really this innocent? I, I know what, I, I, at least I think I know what Thomas is going for here is that he's he's naive. He doesn't really understand the ways of the world and everything. But it seems a little inconsistent. I mean, he's literally holding a smoking, you know, fuse burning bomb in his hand. And then he holds it out to Todd going, what does this present do, Todd? Unwrap itself? I mean, <laughs> come on, really? That's just, that's kind of silly. And why did Todd have to spoil such a wonderful moment? Why did he tell him to get rid of the bomb? I didn't understand that at all. Maybe he doesn't hate Norda as much as we do. Hopefully that'll come in time. Uh, page five. What What the hell happened here? I. This is one of the few times in the artwork where I was a little confused as to exactly what happened. 
because you've got the gang member that whips out a gun and he's aiming it and Norda gets in the way and he says, uh, she is right, my friend. Surely you don't want to hurt any. And then we see just the word blam and Norda is missing from the next panel. Then after that, he's like, I don't know, is he like picking himself up off the ground? Hmm. and suddenly he doesn't have his hat on, so he reaches back down, he picks up his hat, and his hat has a smoking hole through it. So did Norda just take a round to the head? No. Or did he barely miss being shot? I think he barely missed being shot, because the hat is covering his uh, feathers. So (laughs) the the space between the feathers is empty. Right. So... It blew through the hat, probably maybe slightly grazed his skull and knocked him back, but it didn't actually hit him. Yeah, it's, I think I just thought that was a little bit, a little bit strange. Yeah, I believe the word you're looking for is redonkulous. So. Yeah, it is a little redonkulous, but I mean, it, it just it gives the impression that he was shot. Yeah, because you don't see where the guy's aiming this. I, I, I think the staging is a little bit weird. I, I think it could have better portrayed the fact that the bullet went through the hat and didn't hit him. But just the way it is set up here, it looks like Norda is shot because you've got him standing there and then the blam and then an empty panel. So I took it as, oh my God, you know, he just, you know, he took a round to, I don't know, the head or the chest or whatever, enough to knock him down. And it's not. Essentially, it just knocked the hat off his head. But then why isn't the next panel after the blam just Norda standing there without a hat on his head and then reaching down to pick up the hat? So it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. I thought it was a little bit weird. Uh, Page six. uh, I, like you, I loved Obsidian's uh, transformation here. I like the way that McFarlane broke the panel up. It's a little strange looking, but I think it works really well. I, I like, you know, the all black figure with the white ink you know, outlining the details of him. I just, I think that actually, you know, it looks very dynamic. Artistically, I think that really works well. It would have been interesting to see Norda have a, or excuse me, Obsidian rather, have a look like that all the time. Mm -hmm. Because usually all we see is just the white of his eyes and his teeth. I like this idea of his face actually being uh, inked in white. I think that's actually an interesting idea. Page seven. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, I actually kind of liked this page. It, it was very dynamic. I love how McFarlane made the the swirl of the robe. You know, as Norda strips off the robe, he incorporated that swirl into that image of Norda then taking to the air as well. And so it's all one dynamic swoop. That actually, again, artistically, that works very well. I think that's kind of neat. Pages 8 and 9, uh, no. This started out with a lot of great potential. You, you've got Norda, like I said, he looks really great on page 7. He, ch- he changes into Northwing, and then, or Northwind, rather, and then on page 8, he pursues the bad guys. He drops into the seat behind them. All of that looks very cool. It's, it's very dynamic. And then it just devolves into comedy and Norda being flat ridiculous again with his, you know, oh, gee, would you mind pulling the car over and all this? <laughs> And then they try to redeem it with this scene of him suddenly turning badass again and smashing the guy's face into the ground. But I think somewhere in that transition between 
I'm going to get these guys and now I'm going to be silly and now I'm going to be a badass. It just kind of loses the, the pace of the scene. And again, with it being inconsistent in his character, is he a superhero? Is he a, is he a naive ditz? Is he a badass? What is he? You know, make up your mind on exactly what he's trying to be or what he's supposed to be here. I thought it was inconsistent. Page 10. If I was on a double date with Norda and he got the hookup and I didn't, I think I'd go home and kill myself. I disagree with you, but I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Page 11. The film strip panel with the Star Rocket Racer. That just looks cool to me. I kind of like that. It's, again, it's different. Something you don't see every day. On the last panel of page 11 is Rose saying, hey, pal, hands off the merchandise. (laughs) What is he doing there? Is Nuclon trying to cop a feel? Might be. Because that, all right, well, way to go. (laughs) Page 14, skipping ahead a little bit in the, uh, oh, you're going to love this one, Mike. Are you looking at page 14? Uh, Let me get to it. I think you'll appreciate this one. That middle panel of Fury. Yo, Amazon, time for a bikini wax. This is a family book. Oh, God. Oh, dear God. Why? Why did you have to put that in my head? (laughs) I'm just saying. Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yes, this is very true. Uh, On the same note, on the same page, I'm about sick of Team Horndog here. (laughs) Had about enough of those two. (laughs) Get a room and stay there, for God's sakes. Yeah, Uh, you're young, you're vital, you're both in really good shape, you're nailing an Amazon. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Uh, Page 15, uh, bottom two panels. God damn, Norda is lame. Ugh. Page 16, had Todd McFarlane and Tony DiZaniga ever actually seen a rock band before? I'm just wondering. (laughs) Chroma's outfit, you know, it has an entirely different context today. So I'm wondering if this is one of the major reasons we've never seen this guy again. You know, you know, when when you make the Rainbow Raider look good by comparison, (laughs) you've done something wrong, is what I'm saying. Yes. You know, I gotta be perfectly honest, I pretty much stopped caring or understanding what was going on at this point in the book. Uh, It's not that it's, it's not that it's bad, it's just not, I just wasn't interested at this. I'm like, what the hell's even going on here? What is Chroma's thing? He shows up to sing a sad song about what? I didn't even follow it at this point, and it was kind of like, eh, whatever. So when Obsidian just clocks him on the last page, I'm like, good. <laughs> Unfortunately, this isn't the end of the story. we got to put up with Chroma for one more issue after this. Um, again, that last page, uh, third panel, where uh, where he is getting uh, hit by Obsidian, does it look like he's going, quit it! <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. Now... Something I wanted to address here was the the special note at the back of the the book uh, as the preface to the letters page. It says, special note, it says, just a word to say that uh, to newcomer Todd McFarlane, who stepped into pencil this and next issue of Infinity Incorporated until the new regular penciler takes over. Who will that be? And it goes into this whole thing, and again, it talks about 
you know, how Todd was a young Canadian uh, living in Washington and how he'd worked on Scorpio Rose and all this. And that uh, Roy Thomas uh, actually hired him to work on a story that uh, is coming up pretty soon. It's going to be a Dr. Fate origin story in All-Star Squadron mm-hmm. number I'm 47. I'm looking forward to that. I, like I that. am too, yeah. As I recall, that's actually some pretty good stuff. So, the thing I wanted to talk about, though, is, you know, as often happens, behind the scenes, when, when one of us is talking, the other one is often following along in, in the comic, you know, making their own notes, or looking at the artwork, or surfing porn, or whatever the hell we're doing while the other one is talking. Evidently, such was the case in the last episode around because I realized that at the end of our crisis episode, crisis number two, that I said something about this issue and Todd McFarlane being the guest penciler and that we ended up discussing you know, that just briefly and I said... Gee, it'd be interesting. I hope we can find out what the story is with all that. You know, why does it say guest pencil and all that? Well, in the prior episode where we covered, uh, you know, All-Star Squadron uh, 44 and Infinity Inc. number 13, you actually read from the historical notes of All-Star Companion number 4 and addressed this very thing. I don't know where the hell I was where you were talking about this at all, but you... You actually explained the whole thing. It's right here. I'm going to read it again. This is from the historical notes for issue 13 of Infinity Inc. It says, as to why this covers uh, this issue's cover is his only work on Infinity, Dave Ross confirms that he was briefly scheduled to succeed Todd Newton, or excuse me, Don Newton, rather, as penciler. As I recall, the book had a higher page count than normal, and with so many characters to coordinate, I felt I wouldn't be able to keep up with the monthly schedule. After some consideration and a discussion with Dick Giordano, I declined the assignment. You didn't do too badly, though. I believe that the replacement artist was a young newcomer named Todd McFarlane. Now, you read that before, Mike. Yes. I don't know what the hell I would... I, 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 I just didn't remember it at all for some reason. It wasn't until listening back to that episode that I'm like, wait, Mike already said what the deal was, so... <laughs> I well, just shows, wanted to point that out. It shows out that I was kind of asleep at the wheel when we were talking about it, like uh, two weeks later, and apparently I forgot that <laughs> I read that. So, right, don't, don't feel too bad about so, it. So, yeah, so that was the deal. So, even though he is listed as uh, guest penciler here, um, yeah, he will be the regular penciler for God a lot of the series. Actually, uh, pretty much the bulk of it from here on out. Although you know, not to the very end of the series, but a good solid chunk of it. Uh, McFarlane will be the artist from here on out. So we'll be talking uh, lots more about him. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, because there's some really good stuff, especially after the crisis with the Injustice Gang and mm-hmm. all that that I that I remember liking quite a bit. Uh, so no, I you know it, I was hard on the art in this one, and I tried not to be, but there were just certain points where I was just like, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like what's going <laughs> on here. But to be fair, since Ordway left, the art's been kind of hit or miss. So oh, yeah, yeah, you know you have that. No, I I did though. I really you know the, while the story is meh, I I I actually did quite a bit like the artwork in this. Um. Again, I think a lot of what I liked about it, though, was I, I liked uh, Dizaniga's inks over it because I, I think it, it helps. 
it, I think it just helped. I think it complemented it rather nicely because, as I recall, McFarlane didn't always get the best inkers, or at least inkers that were complementary to his style. Whereas I think here, uh, this inking does very much complement, you know, this this beginner Todd McFarlane style. I I honestly can't remember beyond this point who his uh, who his inkers are. I'm I'm hoping that we get Dizaniga for a while, but I don't remember. So it's going to be interesting to rediscover all this because, and I'm sure we've said this before. I only have the vaguest of memories of infinity ink it basically comes down to i remember reading it i remember really enjoying it but as far as remembering the specifics i'm piss poor on the specifics so in a lot of ways you know it's it's uh, it's a voyage of discovery all over again but looking forward to it i know that uh one of the characters i always liked from the series is going to debut i think issue after next so i'm looking forward to that one as well but that's about all i got on this one did you have anything else on not it? at all not at all. I'm, I'm pretty much... I, I want to put it away now. <laughs> You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Mm-hmm.